This morning, in our uh, uh, Attributes of God series, we're going to talk about God's truthfulness and faithfulness. And the cool thing about God's truthfulness and faithfulness is that I believe that the majority of you, maybe all of you who stay, believe this. So, we're going to end early and go home. No, that's not true. Uh, Instead, we'll talk about it for a whole hour. Uh, No, but there is, and I'm not going to lie, I'm a little intimidated talking about the topic. Because I want it to be rewarding to you, and I don't want it just to say 800 times, God is true and God is faithful. But when you read scripture, there's a lot of that. God is true and God is faithful, which affects our lives. But the primary purpose, and you have all kinds of ways in your life, you're going to be thinking about how to apply this in ways you need to be encouraged by God's faithfulness. And I'm sure we're going to go through verses that are encouraging, but I don't know all of your lives and what truths you particularly need to be leaning on, what aspects of God's faithfulness you need to be particularly focusing on. So hopefully uh, this will overall be uh, refreshing to you, and, and I think it'll be fun. It, it honestly got a little mind-blowing to me. And that's what most of God's attributes do as we meditate on them. Our minds get blown. So hopefully your mind will be blown. I'm going to read lots of quotes from more godly people than me. I did a lot of reading, and then at the end of the day, I uh, kind of came to the end and be like, I can't beat that. So I'm going to ha- have a lot of quotes, and if you would like to uh, throw anything at me, you are welcome to that. It's why I have a giant and truly giant pulpit. I was uh, at the Shepherds Conference, and uh, uh, and I don't know if any of you have seen, uh, you know, from anything on the Shepherds Conference. They gave away these these giant Bibles. It's a pulpit Bible, and these Bibles weigh, I think, eight pounds. I don't know how heavy they really are. They are huge, um, and the guys were saying. Um, wow, there's a whole lot of pulpits out there that you can't put one of these Bibles on because it's just too heavy. You know, you get these little kind of plexiglass pulpits and stuff, and it's going to flop over. It's giant. And I'm like, I do not have that problem. So I had to go looking for pictures of my ironclad pulpit. You guys know about the first ironclad ships in the Civil War, the Merrimack and the Monitor? First ironclad pulpit. I don't know if it's really iron. Okay, I'm going to stop. Let's pray, and we'll talk about God's truthfulness and faithfulness. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. You are true in ways that will that blow my mind, in ways that I can't comprehend. Your word is true. And Father, what it speaks of, it speaks of with truth. And really, we could go from um, the study of your word this morning to think about, I mean, go from the study of your word about you to go to studying about your word because it reflects your truth perfectly in the original manuscripts. And we thank you so much uh, for preserving truth for us. We pray, Lord, that it would be relating to our lives, Lord. And this is not uh, particularly application-focused. I think that people know that we should believe you because you are true, and we should trust you because you are faithful. And so I pray, Father, in the various areas of um, the individual lives, Lord, where they're tempted to doubt your truthfulness, where they're tempted to doubt your faithfulness, Lord, that you would help them uh, to be applying it. Thank you for this time in your word. Pray, Lord, that it would be be beneficial. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to talk about the truthfulness of God first, and then we'll go on near the end to talk about faithfulness of God. Okay, so 
The faithfulness of God, I've got a definition here from Biblical Doctrine, which is the systematic theology put out by the Master's Seminary. I've got that quote for you, the definition of God's truthfulness. I put in the numbers, though. So where I've got numbers in parentheses, they should probably be in brackets instead because they're not in the original. But we're going to be talking about those three aspects of God's truthfulness. And all the systematic theologies do this. They break down God's truthfulness into three aspects. So we're going to be doing that true, too, even though, honestly, the first word we're going to see, and I don't even know, yeah, there you see in your notes, God is true metaphysically. Like, we could just stop there and leave. I try to read online what metaphysics are, and it's like the study of, like, essence and nature and stuff, the stuff you can't talk about in concrete ways. There you go. So we're going to do that. <laughs> okay, so let's read that, that, that definition together for those who are listening online. Here's from, from biblical doctrine. God's truth and faithfulness. And most systematic theologies really put truth and faithfulness together, right? Because if he's true, like faithfulness is just really a subset of God's truth, his promises, right? He, he's going to do what he says. So most systematic theologies put them together. God's truth and faithfulness are the one perfect correspondence of God's nature with what God should be. Yeah, mind blown. Number two, with the reliability of his words and deeds. Feel a little bit more comfortable there. And three, with the accuracy of his knowledge, thoughts, and words. Okay, so those are three aspects of God's truth and faithfulness. Perfect correspondence of God's nature with what God should be. Number two, with the reliability of his words and deeds. And with the accuracy of his knowledge, thoughts, and words. And we're going to go through and break those down. And the first of those we're going to talk about is God is true metaphysically. So metaphysically. So God is true like in his most essence in his nature we're getting to the un untalkable stuff about god the stuff that it's difficult to be concrete about he is true and then we have our quote from biblical doctrine there god's truth and faithfulness are the perfect correspondence of god's nature with what god should be okay. no one gets to tell god what god should be right who knows what God should be? God does. So God's truth is that who he is corresponds perfectly with who God is. He is true. He is his own equal sign. Right? You are not your own equal sign. You are a person. Now, you might be the equal sign. And I, I'm not going to try to get into metaphysics because I don't do philosophy. I mean, you may be an equal sign. I am Isaiah Mackler, and there's one of me. But I do not equal sign person. Right? I am a person. I'm an example of that. But God is God. He is the true God. So let's go through quotes from much more educated men than me. Here, here's a quote by Dutch theologian Bavink. When we ascribe metaphysical truth to an object or person, we mean that the object or person is all that it is supposed to be. So truth does not merely pertain to God, but he is himself the truth. God is truth. There is a perfect correspondence between his being and the idea of God inherent in him. He knows what God is. All, all of the attributes of God. God is love. God is powerful. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is sovereign. God is trinity. Who God is, 
Only he has the perfect idea in all of its complexity of who God is. And he corresponds to that idea perfectly himself. He is truth. Louis Burkhoff says, In him, the idea of the Godhead is perfectly realized. He is all that he as God should be. So only, only God has the idea of himself. Does, does that mean that we don't know God truly? No, we know God truly to the extent that he has revealed himself to us. But only God knows himself in all of his complexity, in all of his simplicity, in everything that he is. Only he knows the unreachableness, the unsearchableness of himself. And himself corresponds perfectly to himself. And that is true. He can't imagine a better God than he is. Can all of you imagine a better person than you are? Yes. If not, you can ask your spouses or future spouses, right? They can imagine a much better you. But God can't imagine a better him. He is the, and being the best him is to be the only him and which is to be the true him. And this is where idols are exposed in all of their foolishness because they are less than God. Robert Raymond, when scripture declares that God is the true God and intends to affirm that God is the only God is really there. The only, and I probably left that word there, the only God who's really there. So that it's not like saying, like, like there is, there's not more than one God. So true God doesn't mean as compared to just by the fact that they're untrue gods, they are non-existent gods. Right? Because God has built into himself the definition that he is true. That is what godness is, is to be true. So anything that is not God is not a God. He's not true. He's false. Which is pretty cool when you think about Jesus being God. Right? That is mind-blowing. We don't appreciate that, I think, many of us having grown up with understanding that Jesus is God, the Son, and and, I mean, that God the Son became God the man. Many of us have grown up with that, and we've become comfortable with that. Yeah, so how crazy it would have been for the Jewish world, who knew so intrinsically, this is the one true God. All of our problems have been about false gods. We, we, we worship idols again and again. Look at the Gentiles around us. They all worship false gods. And here, Jesus is claiming to be the I am. Wait, how can the one true God be right here with this man claiming to be God? Now, of course, all the evidence supported that. But you can give them, I don't know if it's sympathy. It's not sympathy because they were believing lies. But only God could make that declaration about himself. Good. A God in his being or character is the one who fully conforms to the idea of what God should be. Namely, a being who is infinitely perfect in power and wisdom and goodness and lordship over time and space and so forth. We can't define what the true God is like. We're creatures. So we are totally submitted to his revelation of himself. If God doesn't reveal something about himself, we don't know who the true God is. How foolish it is for creatures. I'm like, this is the beauty of the revelation that God has given us, Right? This is its preciousness. We don't have to imagine what the ideal being is. He is. 
right? He, he's true, and he's revealed himself so that we know who he is. The next quote, oh yeah, here it is. We must say that it is God himself who has the only perfect idea of what the true God should be like. And he himself is the true God because in his being and character, he perfectly conforms to his own idea of what the true God should be. I don't know if that sounds like circular reasoning. No one gets to judge him. No one can stand outside him and say, you're not the true God. I mean, it's even painful to even think about saying that. He is who he is. You see the beauty. I even thought about this, about Yahweh being I am who I am. Yes, he's eternally existent, but he's truth. Wow. I feel like I need to write about that. Here's some scripture, and you guys have the quotes there. Sorry for you saying you guys. That's, that's, that's not cool. John 8, 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And, of course, we're going to do some proof texting here. I don't have time to give you the context for all, all of these verses. Jesus is speaking of the Father. The Father is true. And the things which I heard from him, which, of course, are going to be true things, these I speak to the world. John 14, 6. This is so wild that Jesus said to the, him, I am the way and the truth. Yeah, I don't have scripture up. Okay. I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, mind-blowing to say, I am the truth. Right? Like, w- coming from outside of the New Testament context, we can say that to people, and they aren't blown away that that's someone claiming to be deity. Right? But well, you and I couldn't say that. I am the truth. You can say, I am Isaiah. I know that much. But there's a lot about me I don't know. I can't get to all of my motives. I don't know the depths of my heart. I lie. I, I, I don't always present myself truthfully. Right? But God is none of this. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, that is, I am the truth. Wild and, and, and amazing, uh, his claim to deity there. John 14, 17. He says, John 14, 17. That is the spirit of truth. So this is Jesus talking about the, the, the spirit in the upper room discourse. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. So G, just focus in there. The spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth. The father is true. The spirit is true. The son is true. Right there is the trinity. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that we may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And, and then again, we got First uh, John, and, 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 and I think we are, oh, I'm going to read First John 5, 20 to 21 as well. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. These verses are cool. If, if you've, if you, I mean... You guys can flip your Bibles if you have them with you. You can skim on phones. These, are, these verses are great. They're, they're, they're not up there. 1 John 5, 20 to 21. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Who's the him who is true? God. Jesus came so that we can know God who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. We talked about being in him earlier. We are in his Son who is true. This is the true God in eternal life, which would refer most... Uh, cl- closely there to his son Jesus Christ who is the true God and then what does he say little children guard yourselves from idols 
Like, what are you doing with the idols? Right? They're not true. The Son is true. The Father's true. We are in Him who is true. Get away from false gods. And that could be any number of actual idols to, 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 the, to things that we exalt uh, in our hearts. Uh, so, of course, from this, all other gods are lies. Um, we can see how, how blessed we are as believers to know the one true God, right? Like, 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 like there are people who've been leaving lies their whole lives. There are people in Orange County who have their own fabrication of what God is, who is not the one true God. I mean, the one true God is all-knowing. The one true God is sovereign. The one true God is faithful. When we doubt his faithfulness, we, we are somehow drifting from the true God. Around the world. And I was telling Margot, generation after generation believing idols. Their fathers are believing in idols, and their grandparents believed in idols, and their great-grandparents, and they believe in the same idols. Those are not the true God. In 2 Chronicles 15.3, uh, 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 the, the, the author bemoans be, be that for many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. So this is what happens after Israel returns from from Exodus, and really it's a syncretism that starts, and the Samaritans come from that, but they were without the true God. They didn't know the God of the Bible in the truth of, 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 in the truth of him uh, being as he is. Uh, we, we, could, we could go down to Jeremiah 10, verses 8 through 10, and here is one of the many, uh, um, I was going to say rants, but I don't know if that's fair about scripture, arguments against idols in the prophets. Jeremiah says, but they are altogether stupid and foolish. Well, the, he's, he's talking about the people who worship. Stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. They're idle. And that word for idle there is vanity. They're idle. Their emptiness is wood. It's not true. It's empty. Allah is emptiness. Right? A, a, a Jesus who is still crucified on the cross is emptiness. That's not the true Jesus Christ. The gods of the world are emptiness. They're vanities. He says, uh, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. I don't know. The work of a craftsman and the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. You make clothes for them. They're all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. And that's just amazing. Like That's what's the beauty of systematic theology and of why you should do theology. We are not coming to the Bible to make God, but to see God as he is. To have God revealed to us. To have re reality, the true God. But the Lord is the true God. Yahweh. His name is special. I am who I am is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. In his wrath, the earthquakes, the nations cannot endure his indignation. So there we see some really sweet truths. I know it gets a little heady. What does that mean that God matches up to his own idea of God. Well, because he's God, he is the only one who has the idea of who God is, and that's who he is perfectly, and he is 100% who he is, and he always will be 100% who he is. The next one is that God is true ethically. 
God is true ethically. And this one, I think, is a little bit easier. We spend more time in ethics in what's right and wrong than we do metaphysics, which is the nature of reality. Okay, so we see this quote from Biblical Doctrine. God's truth and faithfulness, and I'm just going back to the quote you've got at the beginning of the page. Um, God's truth and faithfulness are, one, we just talked about this, the perfect correspondence of God's nature with what God should be, and two, with the reliability of his words and deeds. Okay? So that's part of God's truth and faithfulness. His words and his deeds are reliable. We're going to talk about his deeds being true as well. It's pretty cool. Uh, so God's revelation of himself is perfectly reliable. Now here's time for some quotes. from. Here's one from Robert Raymond. Precise equivalency between what he thinks and what he says. Okay? That's so awesome. Like, again, it's tough not to make this about God's word, right? Precise equivalency between what he thinks and what he says. Now, we know that all of God's thoughts are not in God's word. His thoughts are infinite. But what is in his word is perfectly equivalent with his thoughts, even though he uses some 40 sinful men to write those thoughts. Right? He sovereignly oversees that process so that his word in all of these human voices, shepherds and doctors and ex-Pharisees, perfectly reflects his truth. Let's see here it says, what he says inerrantly reflects what he thinks, and what he thinks is infallibly reflected in what he says. His word is truth, and therefore, it is reliable. That's where application comes. His word is reliable. His word is truth, and therefore, it's reliable. Consequently, he declares things and relationships to be as they actually are. He cannot lie. So when he speaks about human nature, he is true. When he speaks about himself, it is perfectly in line with what is true. Another author, Bavink, back to the Dutch theologian, said, whoever expresses himself differently from what he thinks is, that should be thinks, is untrue, a liar. Okay? If you express yourself differently from what you think, you're a liar. God reveals himself, speaks and acts just as he really is and thinks. What a ground of confidence, right? What, what, what joy when coming to his word. We don't have to be worried about him pulling the wool over our, our eyes. What, what motive there is to study it if you get it right. If you get it right, you get what is true, right? How, how, how much does that motivate us not to be passive in our reading of scripture? To sometime in some area of our life, dig deeper, whether in Romans and care group or after Sunday morning or listening to sermons or doing your own Bible study. To say, I have to know what this really says because it's, it's God's thoughts. If we get it wrong, are those his thoughts? They're not. So we, so we have to get it right. That's why I thank you for, for allowing us to be pastors. You, know, you, you allow your elders to have time to devote themselves to the study of the word so that we can make sure what it says is true or, or else there's no point in it. Another theologian named Feinberg, I think this is uh, John, Charles Feinberg's son. None, none of this means that God tells us the truth that he knows or, oh, I'm sorry, tells us all the truth that he knows or that he is obliged to do so. It only means that whatever God says matches the way things are. So it's not for us 
to tell God what's true, but it's us to listen to what's God is true. So when God says, and, 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 and I'm not going to step on toes here, but let's talk about six-day creation. Our question is to say, what does God believe is true? What does God think? Now, we have to study his word to find out what that is. But that is the question we must ask. When God says the earth, the creation was made in six days, we have to say, what does God mean? What does he think? It only matches whatever God says. Okay, so, so it only means that whatever God says matches the way things are. That are. And that's it, very encouraging. What, what, what hope there is in God's word, but what weightiness as well. When he talks about hell being internal, that is the way things are. He speaks truth. Now, we can boil this, this down pretty simply. If some of this has been, you know, a little, a little heady and a little out there, we can be encouraged that God doesn't lie. And uh, you've, you've got that in your notes there. I'll read some of those verses. God is not a man, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? You know what's, you know what's wild about that verse? That is Balaam, the false prophet, being commandeered by God to speak truth about the truth of God. That's pretty wild. He is not a man that he shall lie. That's, that's, that's a sad definition of man there, isn't it? 1 Samuel 15, 29, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Titus 1, 2, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And uh, John 7, 18, and, 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 and you can look and spend up more time with these. Uh, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory, the one who sent him, he is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. Everything Jesus spoke about, everything that Jesus thought was true. He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So God doesn't lie, opposite, or I guess or correlated to this. I know that this is no duh. God's words are true. I've got another quote by Grudem here. God's words are based on this perfect knowledge and accurately reflect that perfect knowledge. Just such a call for humility. God's knowledge is perfect, and his words reflect that perfect knowledge. God's words are truth in the sense that they are the final standard by which truthfulness is to be judged. Whatever conforms to God's own, own words is also true, and what fails to conform to his words are not true. Okay? So whatever conforms to God's own words is also true. And like, that's where we're allowed to do theology. We're allowed even to come up with words to express biblical truth, like Trinity. When we do theology, we want to, have, to, 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 to speak in such a way that we know this is true because it reflects what's true in God's word. But if something does not conform to his words, it is not true. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we don't have to do hard work to say, what do the words mean? We do. But if it doesn't match up, it's not true. 2 Samuel 7, verse 28. Now, uh, yeah. now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Uh, and there's other verses there. I think you believe that God's word is true. But let's go on and talk about God's law is true. 
This is really interesting. And, and, and you might have kind of been paused in your reading of Scripture when it talks about his laws being true. Like in what way is a law, is, I mean like a commandment, true? Nehemiah 9 verse 13 says, Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances, okay, we're okay with that, just ordinances, and true laws. Could there be an untrue law? I mean, I guess I could say something as a person and say, you know, it's illegal to own a goldfish. That's, that's, that's not reflecting truth, though. When God gave laws, they were true laws. So, and Feinberg has this to talk about that. It's really interesting. To say that God's laws and statutes are true means that they correspond to the way that things should be. They correspond to the way that things should be. There's such a thing as an objective moral standard of right and wrong. God's laws correspond to that objective standard. So when God's laws are true, they reflect what is morally true, which is just another reflection of who God is, that, that, that they are true. Not only do God's moral rules conform to objective moral law, but Scripture also tells us that God's actions are what they should be. They correspond to the moral law he has revealed. So God's actions reflect perfectly who he is, his righteousness, his rightness. God's laws perfectly respond, correspond to who he is, to his righteousness. And in that way, they are true. They are the, 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 the perfect reflection of who he is. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. He's not just saying, well, your law is really your law. Say, no, your law is truth. It is, it is a reflection of you. The, 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 there's other verses there, Psalm 119, 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Um, Revelation 50, 15, 3. The song of the Lamb. Righteous and true are your ways. God's actions are true. In perfect correlation, perfect expression of who he is. So God is true Metaphysically, in his essence, he is true ethically. He's also true logically. God is true logically. And I'm not going to have more scriptures under this, this section. It's not because you couldn't add them. It's just that they really are the verses from the previous section where it talks about God's being truth. But here's some, and, and we'll go back to uh, uh, the, the biblical doctrine definition. Uh, so it's, it's that third part. God's truth and faithfulness are uh, with the accuracy of his knowledge thoughts, and words. And that really, you know, and, and really I kind of thought about switching these around and putting the logically first and the ethically last uh, because they're reliable because they're true. And this is probably your most basic uh, uh, understanding of what true. Here's Burkhoff. God knows things as they really are. Raymond. Because he is rational, neither is in, in his own understanding, nor in what he declares is there any inherent contradiction, which is pretty cool. So, and, and, and one author, it was John Frame, argued even that you could say that logic is an attribute of God. I don't understand logic enough to, to say I agree or disagree with that, uh, but that God in himself doesn't contradict. He is non-contradictory. What he thinks is true. Bavink again, by truth in the... It, by truth in this sense is meant correspondence between thought and reality. 
our conceptions are true if they are an exact copy of reality. So this is cool. So what do we know is true? Well, the, and really, there's all kinds of things that we know, right? And uh, how many cells are in the human body? Do, do, do we truly know how many cells are in the human body? No, we don't. We can get a, a guesstimate or, 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 or a ballpark, right? The closer we are to, to what God knows about the number of cells in our human body, the closer we are to knowing what true true is. Now, that doesn't mean it's untrue that we have cells or that it's untrue that it's, I don't know if it's in the billions or how many cells we have, trillions. I have no idea. I'm looking for a doctor or scientist here. Too bad there aren't any. Uh, no, that's a joke. There's lots of you. But uh, some of you know how many, how many cells there are uh, as Round Park. But that's, but that's wild. So, so the closer we get uh, to truth, the closer it, we get to what God thinks. And that should be our search in understanding his word. Our search should be to, to, to be what does God think as encapsulated in his word. Because the closer my understanding matches up with God's understanding, the more true it is. And if something I believe doesn't match up, then it's not true. And I think I've got another here. So uh, God thinks objects to be as they really are, or rather things are as he thinks them to be. That's cool, right? So what is something? Exactly what God thinks it to be. You don't know yourself fully, but you are exactly what God thinks you to be. He knows every bit of you. Not just your biological, but your spiritual. Like, like you are not his thoughts, but perfect equivalency to his thoughts. Right? Doesn't that make us cry out for a savior? You know, he, he knows us. It's not just knows facts, but we are the equivalency of his thoughts of us. Which is just wild. And that's true of the whole universe. Everything in this place. You know, where the electrons were that milli, 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 millisecond ago. Right? As they spin around and everything we as humans are saying, well, well, well what's uncertain? God has them all in his truth. And that's why things exist, really. Like, that, like, wow. Okay, so I hope this is fun for you. It's been fun for me. I'm sorry if it's not. Uh, John Frame says, In the first place, his word is truth, and truth means nothing if it's not opposed to falsehood. Therefore, his word is non-contradictory. And, and, and I don't know what to think about that. Truth means nothing if it's not opposed to falsehood. I guess I agree. I'm, I'm not great on logic. Therefore, his word is, God's word is non-contradictory. God does not do, say, or believe the contradictory of what he says to us. That's so cool. Like, like doesn't that just make you love his word more? Like, like this is to the extent that we translate it right. The original manuscripts perfectly reflect God's truth. Here's Grudem. God is never mistaken in his perception or understanding of the world. All that he knows and thinks is true and is a correct understanding of the nature of, uh, of reality. Sorry. Then the standard of true knowledge is conformity to God's knowledge. If we think the same thing God thinks about anything in the universe, we are thinking truthfully about it. How different is that from uh, what we learn in school? 
right? Or most schools. How cool that, 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 that the search of history, the search of science, should be to align our understanding with God's understanding. That is what we're trying to find out. That's what we're trying to find out is what God thinks about everything, what God knows about everything. And what a humbling search that is. And how, how cool the things that you've spoken clearly about. So when we discover more truths about the nature of reality, we discover more of the truth that God already knows. So the more that we truly know, the more we know of what God has always known. So we could apply God, God's truthfulness in many ways. Um, and here's a quick quote. I don't know if I've got it up there. I don't. That gives us God's faithfulness. Uh, let's see. Yeah, just uh, this is mind blowing. But but but, but a quote by uh, by Luce Burkhoff: "The truth of God is the foundation of all knowledge." And it's not just saying we need, need to know God first before we truly know something. Although some could argue that, but this truth of God is the foundation of all knowledge. If he weren't true, there would be no knowledge. And the only knowledge that there is, is because he's true. That's, that's, that's cool. Uh, so God is so true that he has no one else to call upon to affirm his truthfulness, right? And this, and this has to do with us being humble, right? We can't judge God's truthfulness. Now, we can say, does the verse really mean that? But we can't judge God's truthfulness. We can't exalt ourselves above God and say, yes, he's being true now. Genesis 22, 16, when God wants to make something certain, he, and, and this is a promise to Abraham, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your, your only son. So this is Abraham after uh, being willing to offer up Isaac. God confirms his covenant to him. By myself I have sworn. I've got no one else to call on. I could just say I'm true, but you like a promise, so I'm going to promise. Not that it was God, God being gracious. He can only promise by himself. He can't say, well, open up your textbooks, and you can see that I'm true. He just swears by himself. I've got no one else to call in authority. The same reasoning and referencing this is in Hebrews 6.13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So that is, God is so true that he has no one else to call upon him to affirm his, his truthfulness. And really, it, it, it'd be awkward in a way to say, um, Melissa, can you, can you affirm I'm true? Right? Because who's the authority then? Right? We are not the authority of God's truthfulness. He is the authority of his own truthfulness. It makes sense that God would love truth and that we should speak truth, right? Uh, Thomas Watson, the, the, the Puritan, says, A liar is most opposite the God of truth. A liar is most opposite the God of truth. It, it puts our lying in perspective, right? Deceiving. Having someone think other than what's actually true. Another quote by Thomas Watson, He who tells a lie makes himself like the devil. The devil is a liar and the father of lies from John 8, 44. That's pretty wild, right? Not only are you not like God, you're making yourself like Satan when you deceive. Now here, if it needs to get more convicting, here we go. 
to speak fair to one's face. This is Thomas Watson again. To speak fair to one's face and not to mean what one speaks is no better than a lie. So to say something nice to someone but really be thinking something else or be talking behind their backs, it's just a lie. Colossians 3, 9 through 10 says, Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practice and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Doesn't that make lying seem so much worse? Right? God's nature is to speak truth. Our salvation means our conformity to him in his truth. That is what sanctification is. To become a truth speaker as God is. That gives us encouragement. And really, honestly, by studying God's truthfulness... I've felt renewed boldness in evangelism, right? This is such a blessing. God has spoken and made truth known. God has given his truth with us. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul talks about this ministry of the new covenant. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That is what we do when we preach the gospel. We don't adulterate the word of God. We manifest truth, right? Like we can have boldness. The world needs this. They can't be saved without this. We're the only ones, the believers are the only ones who's got it, right? Like, like whatever God speaks on, he speaks with truth. What, what, what a blessing. Of course, if we're going to be like God, we ought to, you know, we're gonna, we ought to love truth and to hate lying. And scripture talks about how much God hates lying. We see that in Zechariah uh, uh, 8.17. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury, a form of lying, for all these are what I hate. Proverbs 12.22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his, are, 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 are his delight. There, there's more verses there about God loving truth and hate and hating lying. But let's go on and talk some about God's faithfulness. Yes, some quickly. The faithfulness of God. Boy, here, here, here's a sweet quote. I don't think I put it up there. It's short enough you can write it down. It's by Thomas Watson. Mercy makes the promise. Truth fulfills it. Mercy makes the promise. Truth fulfills it. Isn't that sweet? God graciously gives his promises to those who don't deserve any promise except judgment. And then God graciously, because he's true, he fulfills it. He can't make a promise and not fulfill it. Incredible. So let's look at some definitions of faithfulness. Again, it is tough to distinguish from God's truthfulness. Here's Grudem. God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he's promised. That's sweet by itself, but don't you like God's faithfulness more after his truthfulness? Right? When you see how essential, it is essential to his character that he is true. Luth Burkhoff. God is ever mindful of his, com- of his covenant and covenants and fulfills all the promises which he has made to his people. Robert Raymond. God is covenantally faithful. That is, there's a precise equivalency. He likes talking about precise equivalencies. Between what he says he will do and what he actually does. That's incredible. And it just leaves us to be like doing what? Trusting. Trusting and obeying. If he's promised, he's going to do it. There's so many scriptures about God's, about God's, fa- about God's 
faithfulness. There are times where the ESV has the word faithfulness when the New American Standard has the word truth. There are multiple words for truth and faithfulness. A lot of them just have to do with exactly what we think it is, that God is true. He's, we, we can be certain. He is steadfast. He's unmovable in what he says. Exodus 34, 6 is a sweet verse. Then the Lord God passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, or loving kindness and, and faithfulness. Psalm 57, 3 talks about God uh, sending out his loving kindness and his truth and his faithfulness that they come to rescue. His loving kindness is his steadfast love, is his covenant-keeping love. His cast love goes out and along with it at the same time comes truth, comes faithfulness. They are inseparable. God chooses to extend mercy and then he chooses to keep the promise for mercy. And I'm going to skip to Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. God keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations. He's the faithful God. A very encouraging verse. And we have this new covenant, not sealed with the blood of animals like the old covenant, but sealed with the blood of Christ. Right? He is forever going to be faithful. He's not going to deny his own son. And who are we in if you have saving faith? You are in his son. He is faithful forever to the new covenant. Psalm 36, verse 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. The extent of his faithfulness. Uh, let's see here. And a, a often verse, Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's Jeremiah taking comfort in the middle of Lamentations, which if you read is not how, like 322 and 23 is a sweet highlight of that book, right? If you read that book, you're like, wow, Jeremiah was going through some horrible, horrible, horrible times. The book is devastating. But that doesn't change God's faithfulness to his promises. There's, there, there's some other sweet verses. If you've got your Bible open, you should flip with these. Uh, they said some of these New Testament passages are great. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. And this is Paul's letter to Corinth, who was a little bit of a zoo. Uh, uh, had all kinds of problems going on in that church. Um, not, not the models. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. It shows where Paul's confidence comes from. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, which probably they were boasting about, but even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here you see Paul's hopefulness. You know, so although in, in that Philippians 3 passage we saw during, during first service, Philippians 3.11, if somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, that wasn't that he didn't have confidence. He just didn't want to be presumptuous and get lazy. Here's this confidence he has for the Corinthians. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You guys are a mess, Paul's saying. Well, he's going to say it later. To Corinth, even 2 Corinthians is even more of a mess, right? You guys are a mess, 
But God is faithful. The work that he began in you, he's going to carry to completion. How sweet to think about in our relationships with, with one another. Now, that person's kind of a mess. I'm kind of a mess. God is faithful, right? Why? So sweet. Verse 9, through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is not going to change his faithfulness to his son, and we are in him. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 to 24, another sweet verse on the faithfulness of God. If you're doubting his faithfulness, these are good verses. Memorize them. Now may the God of peace, so, so, so it, it's a blessing here. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body preserved complete. Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Very similar idea to that 1 Corinthians passage. What an encouragement that God will faithfully bring to completion the work he has began at us. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will be in Christ Jesus at the return of Christ. Amen? It's good news. Second uh, Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. It's especially relevant as we talk about going through sufferings for the sufferings of Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings. The Lord is faithful, and he will protect you from the evil one. He will preserve your faith. Hebrews 10, 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And of course, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to forgive because he has promised to forgive. I, 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 I want to look at a couple of quotes here about God's faithfulness before we finish. Here's Louis Burkhoff again. So what is faithfulness? It is the ground of their confidence. Talking about saints. The foundation of their hope. The cause of their rejoicing. It saves them from despair to which their own faithfulness might easily lead. Gives them courage to carry on in spite of their failures. And fills their heart with joyful anticipation even when they are deeply conscious of the fact they have forfeited all the blessings of God. Even when we realize in ourselves, in our unfaithfulness, that we deserve nothing from the, the Lord. It's a very sweet quote there. Here's, here's one by Feinberg. Here's one by Feinberg. The vast majority of verses that speak of God's faithfulness simply teach that he's dependable. When we need him in time of trouble, he is there. He has never let us down. He has never let us down. Never lied to us and has always done what is in our best interest, even when it was hard to understand what he was doing. Right? And that's what the faithfulness of God is. He acts according to his promises. You are in Christ Jesus if you have true faith. You are loved by him. Even when what he's taking us through is horrible. It comes from his faithfulness. Here's a couple quotes by A.W. Pink. This is not the pop star. Pink. Not only does his word, uh, why does his word, and let's, let's see here. I obviously got something wrong here. Not, not only does his word, okay, uh, abound in illustrations of his fidelity, his, his, his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises, but also records numerous examples of his faithfulness in making good his threatenings. Every stage of Israel's history exemplifies the solemn fact 
unless you have fled or do flee to Christ for refuge, the everlasting burning lake of fire will be your sure and certain portion. God is faithful. That's sobering, right? It's encouraging all of the blessings that we have for those who are in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, God will be faithful to his threatenings. There is an eternal lake of fire. Here's a sweet quote about worry by A.W. Pink. The apprehension of this blessed truth will preserve us from worry. To be full of care. To view our situation with dark forebodings. To, to anticipate the morrow with sad anxiety is to reflect poorly upon the faithfulness of God. He who has cared for his child through all the years will not forsake him in old age. I'm, I'm going to read that again, and we'll finish with that. The apprehension of this blessed truth of God's faithfulness will preserve us from worry. To be full of care, to view our situation with dark forebodings, to anticipate the morrow or tomorrow with sad anxiety is to reflect poorly upon the faithfulness of God. He who has cared for his child through all the years will not forsake him in old age. And that's why it's so important that God's faithfulness is the tandem expression of his truthfulness. Right? What he says he will do. Let's never have a day apart from his word. Why would we forget for a day his truth to us? lest we forget his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Now, dear Father, we thank you for your word you have graciously given. I pray, Father, that our thinking about your truth, oh Lord, we are humbled. Uh, you are exactly who you say you are. And Lord, you chose to speak. You could have never spoken at least as far as we understand your counsels, Lord, it was of your own free will that you spoke. Lord, you would have been eternally true, eternally exactly who you are. It's just incredible. And yet you uh, chose to make covenants and to keep promises. Lord, we're humbled by that fact. And then you choose to reveal them um, perfectly, even using tools of sinful men through your spirit of truth to point us to Jesus who is truth. Oh Lord, we confess, God, how much we approve lies, how much time we spend crafting a world where you're different than who you are, where we don't submit our thoughts to your thoughts, but we question your goodness, and we question your sovereignty. We question what you say. Lord, help us, Father, to be diligent students of your word that we might um, get what you're really, truly saying and that we might cling to that with total allegiance because if we deny your words, we deny you. Help us, Father, to remember your faithfulness. And I pray for our brothers and sisters that they'd be encouraged by your faithfulness, Lord. That, that, that they would seek to rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in you because you are faithful. We can rejoice in you because of we know from this morning that those who are in Christ who are found in him have righteousness. And we can rejoice in you because 
we get to participate in the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, that we will attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we are so thankful. So, Lord, you've been faithful to these promises, and you're going to keep them. Lord, what boldness ought we to have? Lord, we are the sole guardians on this earth of truth, Lord. Your church is founded, is, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Your church upholds that truth. Help us to be bold with it, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would give us conversations even in this upcoming week, that we would speak what we know is true, that we would not keep our lips sealed, that we would give glory to you who is true. Father, I just, I just, I'm just humbled. Oh, Lord, I pray that this would be beneficial, even though some of this uh, was, 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 was deep. I think it's, it's deep to me, Lord. Um, may, 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 may we just uh, really bask in your radiance and then go and speak your truth and depend upon your faithfulness, Lord. Help us to guard your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.